0: Before we actually get started, so a couple of points, if you have not yet gotten a chance to get the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, that book is, uh, Baruch Shem. it's has become quite a, uh, it's on its way, I think, to becoming a classic. It's sold already 15,000 copies, um, <clears throat> rave, rave reviews. If you've not gotten a chance yet to get your copy, please go to theshmuz.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com on the homepage over there and get a copy. You could also still get the video book. The video book is, uh, it's not the final, final version, but it's pretty impressive. The final version of Mitzvah Shem is going to be coming out. Uh, it's coming from China shortly. But the imp- version that's on there is a little bit cheaper now, but it's uh, really very, uh, very amazing. If you go to the shmuz.com, T H E S H M U Z.com, you could find it all there. Um, <clears throat> okay, I'm assuming that we're live on Torani time. I'm not seeing anything otherwise. And uh, so I'm hoping that we are. Um, just one second. I'm going to go to over here. I want to see if I can catch the questions. Yeah, <clears throat> okay. So, again, what we'll be doing is we'll be using the Q&A. If any time you have questions, please feel free to put it into the Q&A. Uh, also, if you would like, we have a WhatsApp group that we send out chizuk every three, well, three or four times a week. We send out these very inspirational short videos. If you'd like to join, you could go to theschmooze.com, t h e S h m u z dot com, and again you'll see the um, you'll see a sign up there for the WhatsApp groups. Uh, also, if you have questions in general that you would like me to deal with, especially on this year, <clears throat> you could either after the session here you could put it into the Q and A, and I'll deal with it right then. If not, uh, What you could do is you could send it to Rebbe at theshmuz dot com, R e b b e at theshmuz dot com, t h e s h m u z dot com. And at a future point, I will, believe Ned there, try to get to them. So, again, if you'd like me to deal with any questions, just send an email to e at to com, or you can join here. Uh, right, and I think we are ready to go. Um, <clears throat> okay, and again, please feel free, if you have any questions, comments, or anything, please p- put it into Q&A, and we're good on the Q&A. Just, uh, someone just let me know if the sound is good, audio is good, video is good. I hate to go 40 minutes into things and find out it's no good. One more time, tell me if you can see and hear well, please. One more heads up, please, please, please. Uh, Sam raised hand. No, if you got the way you got to do this if you go into the Q and A, if you go into the Q and A, uh, just and just let me. You just go into the Q and A, then and type in. I look at it at the raised hands. Uh, we'll do. We we'll use it after. So just someone type into the Q and A if you can hear me. If you can't hear me, I guess me to okay. Good, that's what I need to hear. Thank you, thank you. Okay, let's uh, let's begin. A number of years ago, I was speaking to a young man, and we were friendly for many years, and I hadn't spoken to him in a little while, and I said to him, how are things going? He said to me, well, religiously terrible, but spiritually great. And I was a bit curious what that meant, religiously terrible, but spiritually great. So I asked him, what do you mean? He said, well, religiously, you know, in terms of mitzvahs, praying, filen, davening, not much at all. But spiritually, I've never been closer to Hashem. I see Hashem every day, right there. Now, I found this a bit odd, because this fellow was evolved in one of the AA groups. He had become addicted, and AA taught him something that he didn't know before, and that is that spirituality is a part of Judaism. Not just that, but Hashem is the center focus ...of everything in our religion. This fellow went to Lakewood Yeshivas, 14 years of Yeshiva, and the idea that he could be spiritually attuned and recognize God, and that's almost like it's divorced from the religion. You know, religious is putting uh, on tefillin and dominating, but seeing Hashem in my daily life, that's, that's something different. That's spirituality. Um, I found it a bit odd. But what i found over the years is that he's not alone. And many, many people almost can be involved in learning 12 hours a day, doing all kinds of mitzvahs, but Hashem somehow doesn't equate into the picture. And that is a bit curious, because Ramban and Chumash defines the purpose of all mitzvahs. The focal point of all mitzvahs is to know Hashem. The reason we're given the mitzvahs, the focal point of them all is to allow us to recognize Hashem's presence, to recognize that Hashem is the creator, to see Hashem here. And while one may not be attuned to it all the time, we may space in and space out, if you don't clearly understand that Hashem is center focus of our religion, you're not missing a little bit, you're missing everything. And what we're going to start this series with is understanding Hashem on a little bit better level. The name of the series is An Owner's Guide to the Soul. But before we understand the soul... We have to understand Hashem, why Hashem created us, what life's about, and then we'll get involved a little bit more involved in terms of how we act towards Hashem, react to Hashem, how our soul actually functions. So let's begin with something that Derech Hashem explains to us. Derech Hashem explains that there are three ways to know Hashem, and knowing Hashem doesn't mean theoretically uh, God exists. Knowing Hashem means via data, knowing, vashivose el and to bring it close to your heart. To know it, to recognize, to see Hashem present. Explains Darak Hashem. There are three ways to come to that. One is the Mesorah. There were three million Jews gathered at the foot of Harsinai. Three million people were there, and they heard the words Anochi Hashem elekecha. They saw the Va'aretz open up, and they saw through everything. They all reached the level of Navua. And those three million people told their children who told their children, who told their children, generation after generation. And we are the recipients of a very powerful Mesorah. The Mesorah that each of us carries is that God spoke to the Jewish nation at Har Sinai and said, I am your God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. I took you out of Mitzrayim. I created the world. I maintained the world. And by focusing on the Mesorah, by thinking about it, and by dwelling, by learning, That's certainly a way to better know Hashem, and that's certainly a very reliable way to know Hashem. The second method to come to know Hashem, and again, not in the theoretical sense, but to actually feel Hashem's presence, if it could be, to have Yediyah, knowledge, is Bechina. Bechina means discernment, thinking, dwelling, contemplating, looking at the complexity of the world, look at the vastness of the universe, study an atom, study a cell study one cell in the human body and you know that it's more complex than New York City and you study the intricate machinery and you see an eye glimpse to the wisdom of our Creator. And when you begin studying the wonders of the world, the beauty, the tremendous pleasures that Hashem created from colors, sights, sounds, when you see butterflies, when you see flowers, when you see a sunrise, a sunset, and you see the magnificent world that God created when you get an eye glimpse into this world, you get a glimpse to your creator. If this is the creation, what does it tell me about my creator? And Bechina, the process of introspection, thinking, understanding, is the second method to come to know Hashem. The third method is something that's called intuition, idea, knowledge. Before I began this thing called life, I, I the one I'm thinking I, the one I'm speaking to you, was under Hashem's throne of glory, and Hashem took me and put me into this body. But because I had a beginning, there are many things that I intuitively, instinctively know. When I stand by the edge of a mountain, I may never have fallen down a mountain cliff before, but I know that this will end very, very badly. When I see the beauty of an ocean, I'm moved. <clears throat> when I see the stars at night, I just feel something. There are ideas, there are knowledge, there's intuition, there's understanding within the human heart that doesn't need schooling. It doesn't need education. Intuitively, instinctively, I know it. Now the problem is there are many reasons why I don't want to fully accept it because if Hashem is here and Hashem has certain requirements of me, that means there are things I'm going to do, things I'm not going to do, things I'm going to be required to do. And there are many reasons why it may be difficult for me to tune into my inner intuition, but that is the third way for a person to come to Yediyah Hashem. <clears throat> Number one, the Mesorah, just thinking about the fact and reviewing the fact <clears> that three million Jews gave over a Mesorah, one generation to the other, that Hashem said, Bechina, <speaking> delving into the depth of the world, seeing the complexity and seeing my Creator. And the third is just knowing, just being honest with myself, closing my eyes and talking to my Creator and coming to an understanding that deep down inside I have. You know, it's often time only when we're rolling down that cliff, <clears throat> when we're driving on that road and <clears throat> we jump the embankment and suddenly I'm rolling down the cliff, Hashem, help! There's a very clear idea, a very clear knowledge that Hashem is present. During the rest of my life, I might have been very, very staticky and I might not have tuned into it, but when I'm in big trouble, when the pedal hits the metal, when I'm in real deep, dire straits, I call out to my Creator intuitively, instinctively, I know that Hashem is there. But all three of these are systems that a person has to work on, because the knowledge of Hashem is the essence of our religion, and it's a constant growth process. It's not like, I know Hashem, V'yadat It's a pasuk in chumash. Hashem says, you know today. This is speaking to the Dordea. This is the generation who heard Anoche Hashem Lekecha. Nevertheless, Hashem said, you should know today. V'ashivose el Put it into your heart. Think about it. Dwell about it. Dwell on it. Make sure that you clearly, fully understand this. Because you see, the big mistake that we make is, <clears throat> we think either I'm a mammon or I'm not a mammon. Listen, I'm a Jew. I believe. Finished. Done. Emuna is not an on or off switch. Emuna has many, 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 many layers. Most likely <clears throat> we start on a pretty weak level. If you'd like a test of your Amuna, one of the best tests that I have, and I'd like to give this as a very simple litmus test, <clears throat> the next time you're Dominic Shimona Esray. The next time you're Dominic Shimona Esray and you find yourself spacing out. Now wait a minute, how'd that happen? I was talking to God, the creator of the heavens and the earth the one who controls every single outcome, the one who's more powerful than powerful, richer than rich, the one who controls my utter, complete destiny. And I space out? I won't space out if I'm talking to you. If I go to someone for a large donation for the shmooze, I don't suddenly have a... I'm sorry, I'm distracted. I was thinking about something else. How come I could speak to a human being and not get distracted, but I can't talk to God? And the answer is because I'm on a 20% moon level. Meaning, I see Hashem with 20% clarity. I, the neshama, I, the one who thinks, I'm put into this body, and this body has very, very heavy cloak of physicality to it. And this body blocks me. This body stops me from thinking, stops me from seeing. And because I'm submerged within this body, I see things with a tremendous haze and a tremendous level of confusion. And I see things with very, very and dark, very, very distant sight. So, when I'm dominating Shema, sometimes if I put the brain on on, and I work on it, especially if it's Elul, I'll speak to Hashem and I know Hashem's right there, and then suddenly I'm gone. Why? Because again, I might be on a 20 level, maybe 21, you work on it a little more. But the point is, life is supposed to be a growth process. Throughout this thing called life, I'm supposed to be growing and growing, From a level 20 to 21 percent to 22 percent to 23 to 24, a person after many many years might get to 30 percent. And if you see a person really talking to Hashem, really connecting, a person whose life is very very different, they worked for many many years. L'mirat Torah, learning is one of the greatest spiritual sources of energy. But the process of davening, the process of doing everything that we're supposed to do as Jews, helps me to see Hashem more clearly. Helps me to cut through the haze of physicality and brings me from a 20% clarity to 22, to 24, to 25, onwards and upwards. But life is supposed to be a steady progress. And because life is supposed to be a steady progress, we need to understand Hashem as much as we can so that we could recognize Hashem, so that we could cut through the cloak of physicality, and so that we could be dove to Hashem, recognize Hashem in our world. And what I'd like to do in this first session is spend a little time on some basics, because when we get some of the basics, I think we'll be able to better relate to Hashem and better understand Hashem's relationship to the world that we live in and Hashem's relationship to us. So let's begin with a Chazal. The Gemara tells us, When Rabbi Yochanan Menzakai. And Rabbi Yochanan Menzakai was 120 years old. He was the Nasi, he was the leading Torah sage in the Jewish nation. And to his address came all issues, or problems. He was the Goladur. And at this age of 120, he took ill. He took to his deathbed. Niknasu Talmid of His close Talmidim came to visit him. They came to bid farewell to their Rebbe. <clears> Miyad. <throat> Immediately once he saw that they were coming to bid him farewell, Miyad, his <clears> caliphate <throat> begins crying. Amr al Tamidav. His Tamidim say to him, <clears throat> "Ner Yisrael, the light of Israel; Amari the right pillar." Mimne Ma Why are you crying? Normally, when a person prepares to leave this earth, there's a lot he has to think about. Many things he did that he shouldn't have done. Many things he did, <clears throat> he didn't do. But this is the great Rabbi Yochanan Zakai, the perfect tzaddik, the leader of the Jewish nation, <clears throat> the man who spent his entire life serving Hashem as Hashem wanted him to. Mibne Ma why are you crying? And answers Rabbi Medzakai, Ilulifne Let's assume I was being taken now in front of a flesh and blood king. And this flesh and blood king what to judge me? Shimkoi Salai and this king would be angry with me. And Kai So that anger would not be forever. Imosrani, if this flesh and blood king would lock me up, it wouldn't be forever. And if this flesh-and-blood king were to kill me, it would not be forever either. And this flesh-and-blood mortal king, I could appease with words, I could bribe him with money. <clears throat> Nevertheless, wouldn't I cry? And what Rabbi Yohan was saying with those words is a very interesting observation. If you think about one simple recognition, imagine that a jury of my peers were judging my life. Imagine that there was a day in my life, CNN came down and filmed a day in my life, and a jury of my peers, my friends, my Hevra, were judging me. How much did I put in effort? Did I say the right thing? Didn't I say the right thing? Could I have done more? I have done more? could I not have done more? Was I as careful as I should have been? Did I speak or <clears throat> Did I say Brachas with Kavana? Did I dominate? Could you imagine if my friends were to judge me on one day <clears throat> with a single criteria of, how much did I accomplish? How much did I do? How well did I use my time? Explains Rabbi Yochanan Zakei. That is a frightening thought. If i were being judged by a mortal, flesh and blood king, and just knowing that that this king was to review my entire life, would not I cry? Rabbi Yochanan Zakei says that's not where they're taking me. I'm not going in front of a man. I'm standing in front of God, the creator of the heavens and earth. If Hashem gets angry with me, that anger is for eternity. If Hashem locks me up, and explains that means in Gehenim, that could also be forever. If Hashem kills me, the ultimate punishment to Roshayim is they're snuffed out. They're no longer in existence. The Hashem is extinguished. If Hashem were to do that to me, that is for eternity. Shouldn't I cry? Shouldn't I f- be filled with fear? And with those <coughs> words, Rabbi Yochanan Manzakai described the reality that a person should have when he approaches his final days. At a certain point, the Talmidim realized there's not much time left, and they said, "Rabbeinu Barchenu, Rabbi, give us a bracha, give us a final bracha." So Rabbi Yochanan Menzakeh says to them, "He shutei morash shemayim aleichem my bracha to you is you should fear Hashem as you do man. Amalem, the said, "Kul hulo." that's all. Fear Hashem as we do man. You just told us how much more a person has to fear Hashem, the creator of the heavens and earth, than a mortal man. Now you're telling us, how we should fear Hashem as we do man? Says Rabbi ben Zakkai, Teidu, I'll prove it to you. over Before a man sins, he looks left, he looks right. He says, Shelo yirani adam, Halavai. Halavai it should be that you fear Hashem as you do man. Then Rabbi Yochano ben Zakei said these words, melch Yehuda Prepare a chair for Chizkiyahu Melch Yehuda, is going to be Malavim, he's going to escort me. The marshal explains that Chizkiyahu was the king who brought his entire generation back in Shuva. Rabbi Yochano Ben-Zakai did the same for his generation. It was only appropriate that Chizkiyahu would be the one to escort Rabbi Yochanan into his final resting place. And with those words, he left this earth. And this is the Gemara. And there are many, many lessons for us to learn from this Gemara, and certainly one of which is the fact that I, as every mortal under the sun, have a time. There is a time, and that time is clicking away, clicking away. Every day is one day gone, another day gone, another hour, another minute, And there's only one question that they're going to ask me when I'm done my job here. How much did I accomplish? How much did I do? And the stakes are so tremendously grave. What I can accomplish is beyond description. And the opposite damage that I can do is beyond our understanding. And just that recognition that every human being has a case. Every human being has a time. I'm on a continuum. I have just so much time. And when I'm done my job, my body's put in the ground. I stand in front of Hashem and they ask me how much of me did I become. That single cognition is probably the most galvanizing, the most empowering that a human being will ever come to. Why? Because when I realize there's an end, I realize every moment of life is precious. What I can accomplish, what I can do. And more than that, this current moment will never return to me. What I can accomplish right now Will never ever come to me again because this moment, once it's gone, is gone. If I kill time, I kill a day, I kill a week, I kill an hour, that time will never be presented to me again. Every moment of life is an opportunity to grow, every moment of life is an opportunity to change the essence of me. And that moment of life, once it's gone, is gone, never to be returned. And when you understand that, and you understand that there's an end to this party, that concept is not depressing. That concept is hugely empowering. The single most depressing thing that I could think of is that life has no purpose. We're just here. Whatever, you know, eat, drink, be merry, whatever. That is the single most depressing idea I could ever envision or imagine. Because what that means is, ugh, who cares? What I do doesn't matter. What I accomplish doesn't matter. If I do the right thing, the wrong thing, life doesn't matter. But once I understand that there's a limit, and once I understand there's a time, I'm going to be in the box. The body's going to be in the ground. And I'm going to separate and stand in front of Hashem, and there's an end. And at that moment, every action of my life, every activity, every thought, everything I did, is going to be weighed and measured, That is the most empowering concept a human being can ever come to. Because once I get that, my goodness, let's go. And This is a minute to grow, to accomplish, to change, to change myself, change the people I'm around. I can change this moment into a glorious piece of eternity. And that understanding is huge. And that understanding brings a person firepower. It's a catalyst for growth. And it gives a person the energy to get out of bed and move and what Rabbi Yochanan Benzake was saying to his Talmidim was, <clears throat> that was something ever-present in his mind, and certainly at that moment. But that's not what I want to focus on. It's the last conversation <clears throat> between Rabbi Yochanan Benzake and his Talmidim that I'd like to focus on. It almost sounds like there was a vikur. The Talmidim said, Rabbi, give us a bracha. And <clears throat> Rabbi Yochanan Benzake says, You fear Hashem as you do man. And the Talmudim say, lo." that's all. <clears throat> fear Hashem as we do man. And says Riyokh Mazaka, yes, Halavai. Halavai you should fear Hashem as you <throat> do man, prove it to you. Because look, before a person sins, he looks left, he looks right. It seems like the Talmudim had one perspective, and Rabiukarman had a different perspective, and it sounds like there was a debate on the deathbed of this great Sadik. And what I'd like to do is understand both positions and see what we could learn from them. So let's begin with the Talmudim's position. <clears throat> Talmidim said to Reb Zakai, and you ask us to fear Hashem as we do, a mortal man? What were they saying? So <clears throat> to understand the Talmidim's position, I don't think it's too difficult. Let's just focus on some <clears throat> common pedestrian concepts that because they're so common and so pedestrian, sometimes lose their impact. We live in a world of technological wonder. We live in a world where so much has been revealed of the physical aspects of the universe, and that sometimes the awe, the tremendous almost awesomeness of it is just lost to us. Let me give you an interesting example. Let's talk about distance. From here to the wall over there is about 35 feet, not that far. And from here to California is a lot further. From New York to California is about 3,000 miles Even if you get in a jet flying 500 miles an hour, it still takes 6 hours because to cross a continent is a huge distance. But when you talk about the known universe, 3,000 miles is not a great distance. From here to the moon is about 250,000 miles. From here to the sun is some 91 million or 93 million miles depending on the season. But if you'd like to understand what 91 million miles means, I'll share with you one observation. They say that the core temperature of the sun is 17 million degrees Fahrenheit. And if you were to take a grain of sand, heat it up to that temperature, and bring it back to planet Earth, everything within a 60 mile radius would erupt into flames. But because the sun is so distant, 91 million miles is so far away that the sun's energy dissipates. Hence, it's a balmy 75 degrees on planet Earth. But let's imagine for a minute that it wasn't 91 million miles. Let's imagine it was 45 million miles in distance between the sun and planet Earth. What would life be like on our planet? So, as you probably remember from basic science, rock tends to melt at about 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit, life on the planet wouldn't be. Because there's so much energy coming out of the sun that if it was only 45 million miles, the earth would be a molten ball of lava. But because 91 million miles is so far out and the light gets a chance to dissipate, some two billionth of 1% of the energy actually hits the earth and is translated and converted into energy. Hence, it's a balmy 75 degrees as opposed to 4,000 degrees. 91 million miles is a vast, vast expanse of space, almost mind-boggling. But when you talk about the known universe, 91 million miles is not a vast distance at all. From our sun to the closest nearest sun, which is Alpha Centauri, is a distance that's so hard to imagine that you cannot measure it in miles. As a matter of fact, science reverts to a different scale of measure. If you try to use miles to measure stars' distances, and the numbers become so large and so cumbersome that they, you can't even make sense of them. So science reverts to the system measure being the time that light tends to travel, the speed of light. As you know, light travels 186,000 miles a second, and now we have a convenient scale of measure. How far will light travel in one second? 186,000 miles. Now you take an hour, a week, a month. So let's use that as a scale of measure. From here to the moon, light traveling, how much time does it take? One and a quarter seconds. Because 250,000 miles converted at that speed, about one and a quarter seconds. From here to the sun, it's about eight minutes. That means light hurtling at 186,000 miles a second, Measure the second by the minute, eight minutes from the sun to the earth. What is the distance between the sun and the closest star, Alpha Centauri? So light hurtling at 186,000 miles a second times the hour, times 24 hours, it takes 1,500 days for light to travel from the sun to our closest star, Alpha Centauri. Four years! Because there's such an unimaginable distance between stars in the known universe that it baffles the mind. It takes 1,500 days for light to travel. But the interesting part is that in our own Milky Way galaxy, there are not two stars, not even four stars, not even 20 stars. Astronomers estimate that in the Milky Way galaxy, there are approximately 100 billion stars, each as powerful as our sun or more powerful, each spread apart as far as the sun in Alpha Centauri, and spread across a 100 billion miles of space, the Milky Way galaxy. But here's the interesting point. The Milky Way galaxy is not the only galaxy in the known universe. As a matter of fact, scientists revert to a mushel Now, you know, you have to pay attention. You know, from Chazal, we used to moshalim. A Mushel is a parable. We want to talk about spiritual concepts. So it's very hard for us physical people to understand spirituality. We need a new frame of reference. And because it's outside our normal frame of reference, a parable helps. But when scientists who measure the physical world revert to parables, you have to pay very careful attention. Science gives us a muscle, a parable. If you'd like to measure the Milky Way galaxy compared to the known universe... It's the equivalent of measuring a coffee cup against the United States of America. Because in the known universe, there are approximately 100 billion galaxies, each containing 100 billion stars, each spread across this vast known universe of 13 billion light years of ever-expanding space. Would you like to know what the Talmudim was saying to Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai? All you have to do is imagine the moment before my subrecious. Hashem said, And from absolute absence of anything, a hundred billion galaxies, each containing a hundred billion stars, came into existence. The world we know in, says the Tamid, you ask us to fear God as we do man. Mortal man who puts his head down on a pillow at night and doesn't know if he's going to open his eyes in the morning or not mortal man gets one little coronavirus, and he's toast. He's history. You ask us to fear the creator of the heavens and the earth as we do man? So I think we understand well the Talmudim's question. The question now becomes, so what's Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Zakai's answer? Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Zakai didn't say, oh, tak, I never thought of it that way. Quite the opposite. Halavai. It should only be halavai that you fear Hashem as you do man. The question is, what did Rabbi ben Benzakai say to his Talmidim? And to understand that, let me take you back to my uh, high school Rebbe days. I was a high school Rebbe for about 15 years, and I created a very close Kesher with the guys. And the guys would ask me questions as they get older. And oftentimes, a guy would be close to getting, going out, and he'd ask me for advice. One of the pieces of advice that I would always give a guy is, if you're going to take a fine-based girl out on a date... <clears throat> do not take her out to eat on the first date. Go for a walk, <clears throat> go to the park, whatever, but don't take her out to eat. First of all, <clears throat> your first date might be your last date, and it's very expensive, but much more than that, she's going to be very, very uncomfortable. You understand? <clears throat> she's going to be there eating in front of you, and she's going to wonder, do I slip the spaghetti, how I crunch the lettuce with my mouth open? She's going to be so uncomfortable, don't do it. That was the advice I used to give these guys. Now, here's a very interesting observation. Let's imagine we have a 21-year-old young woman. Now, she's been eating for quite a number of years now. Since, let's say, she's about two years of age, she's been eating uh, three meals a day. Three meals a day times 365 days, about 1,000 meals uh, a year. You're talking 18,000 meals she's eaten to this point. Somehow she knows how not to slurp the spaghetti, how not to scrunch the lettuce when she's chewing with her mouth open or closed. So how did she suddenly become uncomfortable when it comes to eating? And the answer is because, come on, this guy, maybe my basheret, this is a very, someone's right there who's very, very important in my world and <clears throat> might be the person I'm going to marry. And that's exactly what Rabbi Yochanan ben was saying. The single cognition that Hashem is present will change your life more than anything else. If you want to study the vastness of this universe, if you want to study the complexity of the world, you'll see the wonders of Hashem's world. But if you want to come to real Yerusha recognizing that Hashem is present right here will have a much greater impact. Yes, it's very important to read physics books. And yes, it's very important to study science, to study chemistry. Because when you see the wonders of Hashem's creation, you see an eye glimpse into the majesty, the greatness of our Creator. And Rabbi Yochanan Menzake said, well, that's true. And if you want to come to real Yerusha on a functional level, just focusing on one single cognition that Hashem is present will change your life to a much greater extent. Interestingly enough, the Mesil Hashem explains to us that this is called Yiras And this is the highest level of Yiras Knowing that I'm speaking to Hashem, knowing that Hashem is here, knowing that as I go through my life, Hashem is present right here, but not up there, 13 billion light years. Hashem, can you hear me up? Right here. That cognition is the highest level of Yerush Aromamus, <clears throat> the highest level of Yerush Shemayim, explains Mishra Lasharm, and that is one of the highest levels you can reach. But then he says something very, very eye-opening in Paragiotes. He says, Zuhitvila. This is davening. What is davening? And davening is I'm speaking right here. And if Sulashram says, imagine I'm speaking to my friend. My friend is right here, I'm speaking to him, he may respond, may not respond, but he's right here. And Zuhi Tvila, that's davening. Little me having a conversation with the creator of the heavens and earth, but right here. Not up there, Malachim, bring the Tvila's up to Hashem, but speaking to Hashem right here. And that understanding is life-changing. And that understanding demands that I transcend these bounds of physicality. I transcend this life that limits me, and I recognize Hashem's presence. And if I could tap into that moment, that's one of the most powerful moments that a Jew can ever engage in. Now, I don't like to do this too often, but I have become a bit of an observant Jew, and one of the observations that I have is that I've noticed that people have this muscle twitch. I found it especially in the Ashkenazi community, uh, certainly as a Rebbe in a high school, I would see this on a regular basis, before a guy would eat or drink, he there's this like muscle twitch. It's like a now uh, initially I thought it was like some kind of maybe a genetic <clears throat> disease or some kind of disease. I don't know. I don't know what it was. But then I saw it was a universal. This universal muscle twitch before eating or drinking. And there's this muscle twitch. And one day I was rightly curious, and I put my ear real close, and I heard it wasn't a muscle twitch at all. I put my ear real close. And right before a guy put the cereal into his mouth, I heard what he said. He said, Shakavaro. Shakavero. That's exactly what he said. And then he consumed the cereal. Now, my friends, I want you to understand what a bruch is. Baruch Atta Hashem, blessed be You, God, Creator of the heavens and the earth, Elokeino, our God. But right here, Melech Olam, King of the universe, Shachol, that everything. Nihiyya Bidvaro is not past tense. Nihiyya is not present tense. Nihiyya is not future tense. Nihia is all three. That everything that my eye sees, everything that I experience, everything that I encounter was brought into existence and is held in existence with your words. Could you imagine if once a day, if once a day I cut through the static, Acknowledged Hashem's presence. Said the words, You're present, Hashem, right here. Elokinu, our God, Melech Olam, King of the universe. Sha'kol, Nihiyeh Bidvaro. Everything in existence was brought into existence and is held in existence with your words alone. Can you imagine the religious experience I would have? My friends, we don't make one bracha a day. We're obligated by Shulchan Arach to make 100 brachas a day. <clears throat> 100 times a day, morning, afternoon, and night, I'm supposed to stop, cut through the static, cut through the noise, acknowledge Hashem's presence, speak to my Creator, and recognize that He's here, and He's the one who created and maintains everything in existence. And <clears throat> that is a very, very heady concept, a very religious concept, but it's the basis to everything that we do. Certainly, the basis of tefillah, certainly the basis of brachas, and that's an extremely growth-oriented activity. If you stop, recognize what you're doing, and think about it, but I have one more step, and I think changes this whole perspective in a very real way. When my daughter Ricky was six years old, <clears throat> she went to school, and she was learning about mice Bereshis about creation. And I remember she came back and she said, "Abba, I get it. Before Hashem created the world, there were no colors, no trees, there was no ocean. But Abba, um, what what color was it? What, what color was it?" Now I want you to think about her question. You see, if you imagine the moment before Hashem said "Vayihi," if you close your eyes and imagine that moment, what do you see? So typically, we see black, but you see black is a color. Even vacuum implies physicality. But before Hashem said, Vayi, there was nothing. Absence of any physicality. From complete absence of anything, Hashem said there should be, and suddenly everything came into existence. And if you think about that concept, what you're going to find is a very, very eye-opening concept. And that is, creation is physically impossible. You see, if I have quarks, I can make atoms. If I have atoms, I can make molecules. If I have molecules, I can make sand. If I have sand, I can make bricks. But before Hashem said vayhi, there was absence of physicality, complete void, nothing, not even space, not even time. From complete absence of anything, you can't make something. There's no sand to bake into bricks, no molecules to make into sand, no atoms. There's nothing there. You can't mush and mold them because there's nothing in existence. And if you think about that moment for a minute, and you recognize that creation is physically impossible, you begin to understand a little bit about what creation is. You see, one of the fallacies that we engage in on a regular basis is, we think, I'm like Hashem, I'm a creator, I make stuff, all right, listen, (laughs) not quite on Hashem's level, Hashem makes ocean skies and planets, but I do stuff also, I'm I'm a little creator. I'd like to share with you the fundamental distinction between a human creation and God's creation. And that is as follows. <clears throat> Imagine that I build a shack. I take some wood <clears throat> take some nails and <clears throat> bang it together, paint it, <clears throat> and I made myself a very nice shack. And I leave it for 20 years. And I come back 20 years later. Now, <clears throat> I would expect it maybe to be a little bit weather-beaten, <clears throat> a little bit disheveled, but I expect the shack to still be there. And the reason for that is, is because I created nothing. I took objects that were in existence already, and I shuffled them around. I took the wood, I took the nails, I banged them into here, moved this around here. I took objects that were already in existence and repurposed them and reformed them. But that's not creation. Yesh, may I in creation, from nothing, something creation, is vastly different. When Hashem said, Vayihi, he didn't just create the world. He had to form, fashion, and keep it in existence every moment of its existence. And if you like to understand what I mean, <clears throat> I'll give you a very significant but very simple mushle. Imagine it's a February night, and I'm standing there waiting for the bus and I'm shivering, it's freezing cold. And <clears throat> it's so cold I close my eyes and I imagine a beautiful beach scene. Ah, white sand. Ocean blue, cloudless sky. One lone seagull gently wafts across the sky. Suddenly the bus comes splash. Gone is the sand. Gone is the ocean blue. Gone is the seagull. I am the dreamer. As long as I think about the seagull, the seagull exists. As long as I envision the sand, the sand exists. But the minute I cease thinking about it, it ceases to be. I am the dreamer, I am the one who keeps the dream in existence. That is Hashem's relationship to anything in existence. <clears throat> when Hashem created the world, Hashem took from absolute nothing and made it, and thereby and therefore has to sustain it every moment of its existence. <clears throat> Much like I to the seagull, Hashem is to everything in creation. Hashem is not just the creator, Hashem is the creator and mishava, the one who keeps everything in existence, Because a yeshmei, ayin, creation isn't just like taking wood and moving it around. It's from nothing creating, keeping, maintaining because it needs constant maintenance. And Hashem is constantly maintaining every particle of physicality, every part of existence. Hashem is constantly infusing energy. And if for a short moment, for a split second, Hashem would cease infusing energy into any part of creation. It would cease to be. Much like I to the seagull, if I stop thinking about the seagull, it's gone. Any part of creation ceases to be. And when you understand that, you understand one of the names of Hashem. Not Hashem or Furash, but one of the kinuim of Hashem is Makom, place. Hashem is called Makom, why? <clears throat> because Hashem is the place of everything in existence. If anything is in existence, that Hashem perforce is there, Because Hashem is keeping that place in existence. And if Hashem wasn't there, it would not be. So any place that is, Hashem is there because Hashem is the creator and maintainer of everything in existence. Any part of this 13 billion light years of expanse, Hashem is there. Pluto, Venus, this constellation, that constellation, China, Japan, Hashem is here because if you see anything perforce Hashem is there keeping it in existence. And if Hashem was not there keeping existence, it would cease to be. What that means is, if you'd like to find Hashem, Hashem, where are you? I can't find you anywhere in this world. All you have to do is find anything and you'll see Hashem. Find a rock, find a boulder, find water, find a tree, but even something inorganic. Find me anything in existence, and you're seeing your Creator, because your Creator created it and maintains it, much like I to the seagull. And when you dwell on that concept, and when you think about it, you start walking around with a vastly different perspective. If I see anything, I see Hashem. If I see anything that exists, the sidewalk, the trees, the ocean, the rivers, whatever it is, and I'm seeing Hashem who created and maintains it. And that's the kavanah I'm supposed to have when I say, Hashem, you brought everything into existence and maintain everything in existence with your words constantly, all the time, every moment. But you have to stop. You have to think about this. and You have to dwell on it. And you have to let it sink in. And when you do that, you experience Hashem. You train your mind, and you train your eyes to see things very differently. And you understand things in a vastly different manner. I think this Chazal is eye-opening. Because what the Talmudim was saying to Rabbi Yochari ben you ask us to fear Hashem as we do. Man, look at this world that Hashem created. Look at the vastness. Look at a hundred billion galaxies. Look at anything in this world and you see harmonious systems. It's incredible. And what Rabbi Yochanim and Zakkai said, yes, that may be true. That's a wonderful way to see an element of Hashem's world and to see an aspect of Hashem's wisdom and an aspect of Hashem's capacity. But if you want to really grow in Yerush if you want to grow in real understanding, this single cognition that Hashem is present, Hashem is here. If you're here, then Hashem is here. If anything's here, then Hashem is here. And that is davening, and that's brachos, and that's our daily existence. And it's important to be a religious Jew. Every once in a while, I'm a religious Jew. When I'm late, which is often, and I can't find my keys. Hashem, please help, I'm late, please. And I reach out to my Creator. That is a highly religious activity because I cut through the static. I get it. I recognize that Hashem is present. Hashem runs the world. Hashem maintains the world and I'm asking my creator for help. And that activity is transforming because I begin to understand Hashem is the creator. Hashem is the maintainer. I don't want to get heavy here, but because it is Elul, I'll mention one observation within this concept that's a little bit frightening. As we get closer and closer to Yom Kippur, you know, every year I find myself, as many people do, saying, okay, time to get serious. I'm going to make a list of what I did wrong. Let me figure out what I did wrong. And it always astonishes me that it should be so obvious. I should have pages and pages and books and books filled with what, what I could have done and didn't, what I should have done and didn't, and what I did and shouldn't have done. But yet, somehow it's lost for me. So I have one simple observation I think that can greatly change your Yom Kippur, certainly greatly change your L. Okay, let's imagine that one time this year, one time this year I did something I wasn't supposed to. I spoke Lashon Har. Okay, listen, I'm not saying it's a big mitzvah. I know there are lots says involved, and I know it's pretty bad, but all right, listen, you know, come on. Everyone's human, what's the big deal? Okay, let's think about that <clears throat> proposition for a moment. Hashem created me for one reason and one reason only, because Hashem wants to give of His good to me. Hashem put me in this world and gave me this opportunity to grow and accomplish, to reach the ultimate good of being dovet to Hashem. Hashem is the mate the giver, and the only reason in the world, the only reason why Hashem made me was for one purpose, to give to me. And Hashem gave me a Torah, very clear directives. Do this because it's good for you. You'll grow, you'll accomplish, you'll have a good in this world and great in the world to come. Don't do this. It'll damage you in this world, and it'll damage you tremendously in the world to come. Very clear directives. And what happens? I don't really care. Rosh Hashanah is not a big deal. I'm going to do it anyway. Now, you may say, okay, it's an aver, but it's not so bad. But here's where things get very, very interesting. I, as everything else in this world, am a creation. That means I didn't used to exist. And Hashem said, Vayihi, and it should be, and a single cell began dividing more and more, and into this world came I as a baby, and every moment of my existence Hashem was directing and guiding, and every moment of existence Hashem is keeping me in existence, much like I to the seagull Hashem is to me, if for a moment of time Hashem would ever get angry at me, Hashem Hashem would just cease to infuse energy into me, and I wouldn't be. What that means in plain, simple language is, Hashem gifted me with a mouth, a brain, a human brain that has a hundred billion neurons that can accomplish such things, and a human mouth that can do such things. And Hashem keeps it in existence every moment. And while Hashem keeps His mouth in existence, keeps His brain in existence, I use His very mouth to violate Hashem's will. It's as if I took a hand, and the hand that Hashem keeps in existence, and I take that hand and I smack Hashem in the face. Because don't you understand, it's not just that Hashem is present, not just that I'm doing it right in front of the king. The king is keeping me in existence. The king is granting me speech. The king is granting me a mind. The king is keeping me, keeping me, keeping me, and using the very tools he gave me to grow. With <clears throat> very clear directives for my benefit, I use the very tool against his will, against his wishes. The audacity of one sin is so beyond human comprehension that it is worth thinking about. Naturally, Hashem has tremendous, tremendous rahmanas. And Hashem realizes that we're spaced out. And it's rare that we get it. So we don't understand the gravity of our actions. We don't understand what we can accomplish. And then on the opposite side, we don't realize the damage that we do. And therefore, Hashem has rahmanas. And Hashem doesn't hold us accountable anywhere near the amount we should be. And certainly, if we do tshuva, Hashem still gives us, which is the greatest nase imaginable. Because how does it undo the action? But that's the system of tshuva, and it works, and Hashem totally cleans the slate, totally forgives us if we do a complete tshuva. But these are concepts that a Jew has to think about. And a Jew has to think about long and hard the very first cognition that Hashem is present all day, every day. When I get up in the morning, and I put my head down on the pillow at night, as I get behind the wheel of a car, as I drive on the highway, as I get into that elevator and is the elevator shaft going to just collapse or not? As I go down the stairs, every moment of my life, Hashem is there, right there guiding, right there present, right there all day, every day. And that is one of the greatest concepts that a human being can come to. The Talmudian was saying to Rabbi but that's so small. <laughs> Look at the vastness of Hashem's world. And that is true. But this concept is far greater and far more life changing and by the way, if you want an exercise and this one personally has changed my Shemona Esrei every single time before you start the next Shemona Esrei close your eyes for a moment and just envision one thing I'm going to speak to Hashem right here I have to be a little careful Hashem has no corporality, no physicality don't imagine you're speaking but I used to put a chair there guys would, oh Ruby we know what you're doing but imagine that I'm speaking to Hashem right here but if you envision that and imagine that, <coughs> what you're doing is you're beginning to grow in real Yerusha Mayim. Another activity that would be very wise to do is personalize every Shema Esrei. <coughs> every Shema Esrei, make a personal bakasha. If you're not sure where Shema Kolenu is the shahakal of all brachas, if you know the theme of the bracha, you can ask for various <coughs> requests within the theme of that bracha, you can ask in that bracha. If you're not sure, you put in Shema Kolenu. <coughs> if you're really unclear, after the Ratzon, But make sure that every single person you personalize. You make a bakasha, big or small, ask Hashem for help. Why? Because you see, when I close my eyes and I speak to my creator, I say, Hashem, number one, I get it, you're here. Number two, you're really in charge. You really determine the outcomes. I think I'm powerful. I think I'm in charge. I get it. I'm not. And that activity allows me to transcend the bounds of physicality allows me to recognize the presence of my Creator, allows me to understand that Hashem is really in charge and changes my davening, changes my life. The third thing that you have to know is you have to know what the words mean. That's the third issue. But when you work on all of these things, you change, you grow. And I think what this Chazal is sharing with us is an eye-opening concept. You have to have both systems. You have to study the vastness of the world so you see the world, <clears throat> but it says Rabbi Yochim and Zaki have to know that Hashem is present. And there are three ways that Darak HaShem explains to us to come to real Yedi of Hashem. <clears throat> Number one, the Mesorah, to think about it, to dwell on it. Number two, Bechina, which is studying the vastness of the world. Look at an ocean. <clears throat> go to a river. Study it, any single aspect of this world. And when you study, you see the vastness of your Creator, you see the wisdom, you see the wonder. But the third element is probably more simple, and more powerful, that's the intuitive sense. I know it, I understand it. Again, sometimes I don't wake up until I'm in big trouble, but at that moment I call out to my Creator, and ideally it should be on a regular basis, ideally a hundred times a day, a lot more, but certainly during Shvan But the idea of a religious experience is supposed to be a regular part of our existence. And I'd like to close with one last observation. Let's go back for a minute to my mushroom with the seagull. Again, it's a February night. I'm standing there at the bus stop. I'm shivering cold. I close my eyes and I imagine a beautiful beach scene white sand, ocean blue, cloudless sky, and one lone seagull flying east. As the seagull's flying east, suddenly the seagull says, You know what? I don't want to fly east anymore. I want to turn west. So he turns around and flies the other way. I say, hey, guy, get back there. I want you flying east. He says, no, 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 I want to fly west. Come on, no, I'm the dreamer. I want you flying east. No, I want to go west. He says, no, east, west, east, west. Now, obviously, that conversation never happened. Because I'm the dreamer. I'm the dreamer of the dream. Nothing can happen in the dream other than what I will to be. The seagull cannot fly west if I will it to fly east. And when you dwell on that, you recognize some of the wisdom of our Creator. Number one, this thing that we call free will is not simple at all. Nothing exists without Hashem's total, complete, keeping it in existence in every moment of time. No thought exists. No will exists. No cognition exists that Hashem isn't totally involved in totally keeping in existence at every moment in time. So the idea of someone having a will other than Hashem is not so simple. In future sessions, we'll deal why it's philosophically impossible. But here's a much more important observation. There is nothing under the sun that could happen that Hashem doesn't say, yes, it's going to happen. The seagull cannot fly west if I wanted to fly east. It physically can't because I'm the dreamer. I'm the one who keeps it. I'm the one who... It can't turn the other way because I'm its dreamer. There's nothing under the sun, nothing inexistent that can violate Hashem's will because Hashem is the keeper of it all. Hashem is the one who contains it, who keeps it, and there's nothing under the sun that can happen that Hashem doesn't absolutely agree with. Now, to allow for free will, which again in future sessions we'll discuss more in depth, Hashem will allow the seagull to fly west, even though Hashem said east. And if you want to imagine what it's like in my dream, I say, Mr. Seagull, listen to me. I'm the dreamer. I see big and wide. And I know that it's much better for you to fly east. And he says, no, I want to fly west. So I say, okay, fine, listen, buddy. I'm going to let you do your way. You want to fly west? I'll do it. But uh, you see, I have to turn him. He can't turn on his own because it doesn't exist without me and so I say you want to turn west ok we're going to turn west what do you want to do now you want to flap your wings ok I'm going to flap your wings here we go you want to continue you want to, yeah yeah I want to continue. You want, you sure you want to do this sure you want to do this sure you want to do this you see the seagull can't do anything without me doing it and nothing in creation can happen without Hashem keeping it maintaining it the fact that Hashem allows us to do things against what Hashem directs us to is because Hashem wants to allow for free will Hashem wants to allow for but nothing under the sun nothing in creation nothing in existence can happen without Hashem's complete acquiescence and completely agreeing with it and again that has many implications we're going to get involved in but the simplest one is to recognize that my entire destiny and everything that ever occurs to me is completely in Hashem's hands. bullets cannot strike me down lightning bolts cannot touch me because everything in existence is kept in existence by Hashem the bullets, the lightning, corona everything in existence is only in existence because Hashem wills it to be and I stand there because Hashem wills that to be and anything that happens is happening in this dream called life but much like I to the seagull nothing can happen that I don't will to happen and nothing can befall me that Hashem doesn't decree and that is one of the most calming settling concept that a human being can have. I take my heavy load and I transfer to Hashem. Hashem, you created me, and you have a clear destiny for me. I'm going to follow your path. No one can help me, no one can harm me, and you're the creator, you're the maintainer, and you're the dreamer of this dream, and you maintain everything in existence at every moment, and no human being can help me, no human being can harm me. Bullets, earthquakes, And typhoons, nothing. It's all you. There's nothing but you. There's only you. ain Od, Milvado. There's nothing else in existence other than Hashem. And when I get that, it's not just that I see Hashem central in my life. I see Hashem central in everything, and I understand that everything that occurs to me, everything that will occur to me, is directed by Hashem, guided by a loving creator who wants only my best and with that, I live a very different life. All right, let's open the floor now to questions, thoughts, observations. If you have questions, please type them in. I could see the Q and A, and so if anyone has questions, you can type them in. I don't have that much voice left, but I do have, know um, yeah, I do have some voice issues. But I do have. Well, before I also before I go into that, please keep in mind again if you have not yet gotten the ten really dumb mistakes. That very small couples. Make it's considered right now. Baruch Hashem, it's, I don't have a book here to show you, but it's very, very popular. I've received countless accolades, and uh, you know, from marriage counselors, marriage therapists, Chassan and college teachers, and people on the street. It's sold already. Baruch 15,000 copies. It's. I spent a fortune of time trying to define what a marriage needs. It's available on the theshmuz.com. T h e s h m u z dot com. Please feel free um, to go there. Also, if you would like to get the uh, Shmooz <coughs> Chizuk, we send out these uh, inspirational videos <coughs> three, four times a week. And if you'd like to know about different Shmooz activities, if <coughs> you go to theshmooz.com, you'll see you can sign up for the Shmooz WhatsApp group. And <coughs> once you join that three, four times a week, you'll get these short inspirational videos sent directly to your phone. And <coughs> you'll also find out about the different uh, shurim and etc. cetera. So <coughs> if no one has questions, that's fine. Because, again, my voice is about uh, shot anyway. But <clears throat> if you have a question, please feel free to type it in. If not, <clears throat> then we'll be fine for next week. I hope you'll join next week. <clears throat> again, we're going to be mitzvah Hashem every Wednesday night uh, <clears throat> at 8 o'clock. Uh, and there's an ongoing series. The series is called An Owner's Guide to the Soul. Again, we're beginning with Hashem. We'll spend a few more sessions on Hashem, and then we'll get more involved in, <clears throat> in the neshama I, and interface between. But I hope you'll join us Wednesday at 8 o'clock. And again, if you go to theschmooze.com, you can get both the uh, Schmooze 10 Really Dumb Mistakes. You can also get the video book there if you see it. And you can certainly join the WhatsApp group. I thank you very much, and I wish you a very good week to come. Thank you.